Um, there are there are no handouts for tonight. I just got back from a business trip, so I didn't have, get the notes together. What is missing on the notes uh, is just the rest of the summary from page 70 and the bibliography. And we'll get that in the fall. If some of you want the bibliography, I have, have it available. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that we have the freedom in this country to gather together without... Uh, persecution and harassment. Uh, we're thankful for the Word of God and most of all for our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Now let's turn um, this evening to John chapter 3 a moment. Uh, we're looking at the last of the three doctrinal truths to be associated with the life of Christ. Remember we looked at kenosis, which is the word, Greek word in Philippians 2 verses 5 to 8, and that means Christ gave up, as theologians say, the independent use of his attributes, and we had some good discussion last time about independent, and it's not quite a nice word because it sounds like he would have been autonomous, he hadn't submitted, um, but, but basically what it is, it's in his humanity, he relied, had to rely completely by choice when he undertook the mission for salvation. He had to rely upon the Holy Spirit as we would have to rely upon the Holy Spirit. And he chose to do that. And in that, he authenticated uh, the Christian way of life, basically. And in doing so, that sets up his uh, ability to identify with our weaknesses. And Hebrews is full of that. Is he a sympathetic high priest who can be touched with a feeling of our infirmities, that all comes about because of this kenosis and comes about because of impeccability, which was the second doctrine we studied, and that is that Jesus Christ was perfect. He was able not to sin, and in the plan of God overall, he was certain that he never would sin. So Jesus Christ becomes the perfect one which then leads to the third issue, which we're covering now, and that is his infallibility. Can a perfect person make technical errors? And that's the issue that evangelicals who have compromised the doctrine of inerrancy of Scripture have had to assume. You can't undercut the inerrancy of Scripture without shuffling the deck somehow. And, well, how do you shuffle the deck? Well, you wind up with cards in your hand that aren't, are very odd and discomforting because what you have to do in the final analysis, if the Bible has errors in it and Jesus authenticated the validity of the Scripture, then there's errors in Jesus. Now, if there are errors in Jesus, what errors are there in Jesus? Well, <clears throat> these evangelicals who, who did that, and it was in the 70s that this discussion broke forth in all rigor, um, largely, actually, the, the, where it triggered was in two groups, the Missouri Synod of the Lutheran Church, um, because there was a man by the name of uh, Pruis, who I believe at the time was the president of Concordia Theological Seminary. And uh, when he became, the, the Missouri Synod of the Lutheran Church is more conservative than the Lutheran Church. And uh, so when he became president of the seminary, he decided he was going to get off of the faculty. Everybody didn't believe in inerrancy, which he did. 
And then, of course, once he did that, the press picked it up and said the Missouri Synod has been taken over by the right-wing extremists. Anytime you're for truth, you're the right-wing extremists. But all the other guys, they're moderates, see. And uh, then it broke out in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, Dewey Beagle was a professor, Baptist professor, I think at Louisville uh, Seminary. And uh, he wrote a book on the errancy of Scripture and argued that evangelicals should come of age and should basically believe the, er the Bible errors in all, as we sarcastically say of Dewey Beagle. Um, he was answered uh, by Criswells and his staff at Dallas in the First Baptist Church of Dallas. And within the Southern Baptist Convention, there was a long, hard, bitter struggle between these two groups. The press always printed it as though it was the right-wing conspiracy out of Texas that was going to take over the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, I mean, like there's something wrong with Texas or something. And the point was it was Criswell and his group in Dallas that was, was saying no, you know. We have a right. This, the Southern Baptist Convention is, is representative. Churches can come there. So they mobilized. And all of a sudden, when the Baptist Convention occurred, uh, they had done a lot of telephone work because a lot of the churches get lazy and they don't send their delegates or something. And so the delegates never showed up. So the moderate, quote, unquote, really the liberals, had taken over by default, same way it always happens. And so the, it had gone on far enough, and it, the mud hit the fan with this issue of inerrancy. And so that galvanized into action hundreds and hundreds. I mean, little country, rural churches, everybody all of a sudden sent delegate to the convention. And now, all of a sudden, the moderates got outvoted. And they lost. And then they started putting their little press spin on it, saying that the kooks had taken over. And uh, it's always the way it comes out. It regurgitates through the Associated Press and everybody else. But you can ignore the press. The, the point is, behind all the, the gooky stories, there was a serious issue. And that's the issue we're dealing with tonight, the issue of inerrancy. And the point is that nobody wants to say it the way it is. If you're going to deny the inerrancy of Scripture, you're going to have errant Scripture. And if you have errant scripture, you're going to have an errant Christ. And if you have an errant Christ, then we have the problem of how can he be Lord, impeccable, the perfect Savior, and going around bumbling, making all kinds of technical mistakes here and there because he's ignorant. And when you, when you phrase it this way, everybody catches on, well, gee, you can't do that. But it's never phrased this way. It's always phrased and marshaled and carefully polished words that don't sound like really what's going on. So I want you to understand a little bit about the church history. This is the last 20 years this has happened. See, the liberals had long denied inerrancy of Scripture. It wasn't even an issue. I mean, you go to the first liberal church someplace and, and they could care less. I mean, that's a, that's, they threw that out in the end of the 19th century. But when this started coming into the conservative denominations, then, oh, wait a minute, another story here. And it hasn't been resolved yet. I mean, there's still elements in evangelical denominations that are just sitting there waiting to take over from the right-wing extremists, just as soon as they show weakness. So in John chapter 3, here's a, here's a classic illustration of why you get in trouble once you start getting greasy on this issue of errancy or inerrancy. 
Jesus Christ puts the matter bluntly in John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. This is a key text, very central text for this because it's so clear, it's so obvious from this passage. Look what he says. We speak that which we know, and we bear witness. Now, the key here is bear witness. We're going to develop that. So, spend some time this, this evening showing what that means. The phrase, bear witness, necessarily involves technical, historical details. It's the same kind of thing you get in a courtroom. And we said last week, the issue in the courtroom is to destroy, or try to, by the opposing side, try to destroy the credibility of a witness. And how do you destroy the credibility of a witness? By citing technical and historical errors observational uncertainties. That's how you do it. I mean, and this is not something new with American courts. This has gone on for ages. So the, the credibility of someone bearing witness is very much linked to evidence that is used to bear the witness. So Jesus goes on and says, We speak that which we know, and we bear witness of that which we have seen, and you don't receive our witness. Now there's the controversy. People don't, and we said, remember, presuppositionally, people don't accept the witness. Now what he does, he says, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now what's his point there? What are earthly things and heavenly things? Earthly things are th things that Jesus could say and could be reported and checked out by his audience earthly things, things that are going on around here, Jewish history, that kind of stuff. What are heavenly things? A statement like, your sins are forgiven. Where are you going to go to check that one? See, that's a heavenly thing. It's inaccessible. Jesus is telling about inaccessible, unverifiable things, the heavenly things. So he makes it quite clear here in verse 12, if you can't validate what I'm telling you, in the area where you're open to validation and verification, how on earth are you going to trust me if I tell you your sins are forgiven? And yet we have the spectacle of evangelicals, professing evangelicals, telling us that, well, we can discount some of the earthly things that Jesus said, but we go ahead and believe the heavenly things. I mean, how does this follow? What's happening here is that many of these people are Christians at heart, and they know very well it's wrong to disbelieve in Jesus. So they know that they can't do that without totally wiping out the gospel and making it very clear what, what's happening here. So they want to hold on to this. But then they feel uneasy about standing up for an inerrant scripture. So they want to kind of compromise this to relieve themselves of this pressure. So it's this thing, I, I, I want to keep that, but I don't want that. And it's in this, it's this unstable middle, middle of the road position that goes on. But the kind of reasoning that Jesus is using in verse 11 and 12 is very authentic. It's very valid. And there really isn't an answer to it. The challenge that Jesus is laying out here is, if you can show me wrong in areas that you can check out, you have all the right in the world to disbelieve everything else I've told you. Now think what that does to the whole gospel. Okay, now let's go back in the Old Testament because one of the things we want to do, uh, and I think in the notes, um, 
yes. On bottom of page 68, I quote Matthew 11. So let's turn to Matthew 11 a moment. What I'm going to do now is construct an argument of why Jesus couldn't have made technical errors. Matthew 11... Um, 25 to 27. <clears throat> now, all these arguments are interrelated. And once again, this shows you that you can't take a piece out of the Bible. The Bible is an integral whole. And in Matthew 11:25, Jesus is praying to the Father. Now, this is an interesting conversation, by the way, in verses 25, 26, and 27. What we're getting in on here, we're allowed, uh, by the Holy Spirit, we're actually allowed to see an intra-Trinity conversation. We're actually permitted to see the Father and the Son discussing something. This isn't between God and man. This is between the, the members of the Trinity. And Jesus is talking to the Father. So he says, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you did hide these things from the wise and intelligent and did reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal. Come unto me. And then he says, Come unto me, all ye are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now there's that sovereignty responsibility thing going on. On the one hand, in verse 27, he's saying, I'll choose who I reveal myself to. That's my decision. Not man's decision. If I didn't choose to reveal myself, you'd never know anything about me. Nor about the Father. But I decide that. So here, clearly, it's the second person of the Trinity that is the decider about... Who gets what information? And then in verse 28, he gives out the information. And there's the open invitation to all men. Well, before we get into all, all that, because that's coming up more in connection with the death of Christ in the fall, tonight we want to notice in verse 27 that all things... In other words, what I'm saying here is the same thing Jesus said. Remember he said there's one greater than John the Baptist here? And what we're saying is that Christ is very much greater than all of the Old Testament prophets. Okay, so that's, that's the first point in the argument. And that can be easily sustained by the Old Testament. How is Christ greater than the Old Testament prophets? In the Old Testament, a prophet could have made technical mistakes and could very well have been ignorant. Except when he brought God's case. What does Isaiah say when, he, when he's ready and he's prepared to address uh, the people of his time? He says, the word of the Lord came to me. And then the prophet would announce what the word of the Lord said to them. So, in the area of the Old Testament prophet, when he spoke, I'll say this, in the Old Testament prophets, they were infallible in an area. 
And in this area, this is the area where they're repeating the word of the Lord that came to them. When they wrote, when they preached, they were infallible sayers of the word of the Lord. We'll show that in a little bit. I just want you to see the flow of the logic first. The Lord Jesus, however, because He was God, He was infallible through His whole life. Not just when the Word of the Lord came to Him, because the Word of the Lord always was with Him. He was the Word of the Lord. So you see, Jesus is a little different here. Got a little different problem here. What is this? Hypostatic union. What was hypostatic union? He is undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever. Well, that means that He is the Word of the Lord. The Word of the Lord doesn't come to Jesus. He is the Word of the Lord. So that means that He has to be infallible over the whole area. The Old Testament prophets only had to be fallible, infallible rather, when they were teaching the Word of the Lord or giving an oracle or giving a prophecy or writing Scripture. Then they were infallible. Now, let's look at, recall, because in the Old Testament, remember that prophets had a function. So let's go back to Deuteronomy a moment because the role of the prophet is outlined there. I want to be sure we picture correctly what the Old Testament prophets were like. Deuteronomy 18, 18. The word prophet in the Hebrew is Navi, the Nabaim. This was a class of individuals. And they followed Moses. Notice what 18.18 says. God announces that I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen. So what is he? Gentile or Jewish? He's Jewish. Like you. Who's you? Moses. So Moses becomes a fundamental archetype of the prophet. The rest of the prophets are like Moses. And he will speak, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them to all, he speak all that I command him. Now notice the phrase, I will put my words in his mouth. Now that is something that no genuine intellectual today who is well schooled in the, in the climate around us of thinking, 20th century theory of languages, could ever accept that kind of a statement. Because in the whole worldview around us that's infecting authors, it infects the media, it infects the classroom, it infects academia, it infects books that are written, the idea in the 20th century is man has given up the idea that human language can convey anything that's inerrant, absolute, and true. It's just all language is, is just like your dog barks. It's just whatever happens to be spilling around your brain and it burps out through language. And that's what language is. It's all relativistic. But what this challenge says, that God takes a thought from His omniscience. Now, we don't want to trivialize this. I mean, the, the, the unbelievers at least realize there's a problem here. Here is God, all of His attributes, one of which is His omniscience. 
And here man is, and he has finite knowledge. Now, that's a miracle. How God can take a thought out of omniscience and project it down into this prophet's knowledge. And not just in his knowledge, but in his language and in his mouth so he can speak it. That's a miracle. How can God take a thought from his mighty omniscience, put it in a finite form, inject it into the mind of the prophet, and have the guy speak it? However it happens, it happens. And that's what's being announced in 18. The prophets that followed on from Moses would speak the words of God, not because they thought up the words, but because the words were placed in their mouth. Now, does that mean that every prophet heard a, heard a tape recording, some spooky voice, and that's how he got the word of God? No, that doesn't, that's not necessarily what it means. It means all of the ways that God has open to the prophet. It could be someone talking to him. It could be a thought happens. It could be the very words of God coming to them. But however the channels are, this, this is not pinning down what the channels of flow. Uh, in electrical analog, it's not saying it came by this wire or another wire. It could care less which wire. Maybe there's 115 different wires connected between God and the guy's brain. And, and some of them are, quote, naturally looking wires. Some are supernatural wires. Passage doesn't address that. All it says is, is that whatever the wire is, the net result in the final analysis is that what comes out of the mouth of the prophet is what God speaks in heaven. And there had to be some verification for this. Now, in verse 20, obviously you have a problem with the courts of the time. Here is rules of evidence given to the courts that would convene to deal with, to separate the true prophet from the false prophet, because there could be false prophets. So what are the rules of evidence if you were on a jury, you were, in this case, not real jury, but suppose you, you were in a Jewish town in the Old Testament, you might be called to be an elder. You might be called to a hearing. Well, you say, well, gee, how am I going to tell? You know, I don't know one prophet from a false prophet from a true prophet. What do I do? How do I decide here? And you might be called in. You know, there might be a discussion among the elders. And you have to give your two cents. And why do you think this guy is a phony? Or why do you think he's genuine? What are you going to do? Well, Moses says, here's what you do. It says, the prophet who will speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So, whoa. Now we've got a capital offense here. I mean, this is heavy stuff. Now we're not talking just about, well, I'm not going to go to his church. Now we're talking about get out the stones. We're going to kill him right here. This is heavy. This is, this is capital punishment under their system of justice. So, verse 21 says, You may say in your heart, well, then how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How will we identify and falsify the claim of a false prophet. How are we going to undermine his, or you know, detect the falsity in what he says? Well, there's actually two tests given, one here and one in another passage. But the test here is given in verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come to pass, 
or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously and you will not be afraid of him. Now that little verb, not be afraid, tells you something else about a prophet. If he was a genuine prophet and the word of the Lord had come to him and he speaks it, it's just like, you know, he's just written another passage in the Bible and you had to salute say, yes, sir, to God and obey it. You might not like the prophet. He might have been a, a kind of personality quirk. And a lot of people didn't like John the Baptist. I mean, he was kind of weird. Strange diet. Wore funny clothes. And was a recluse out in the desert. Not the kind of nice guy that you'd really like to be too fond of socially. But it didn't make any difference. If God had spoken that word through this kind of eccentric guy, then you're not, you're not saying the eccentric guy is impeccable. Remember that. This is not a claim that the prophets are personally impeccable like Jesus is. All this is, is the words that he spoke had to be followed. That's all. And that's what it means to be afraid of him, respect him, respect the authority. The other passage, so, so the, pass, the, the one rule of evidence, verse 22, is that you had to have 100% fulfillment. Not 98, not 14, 100%. So next time, uh, back in the 70s, there was a Jean Dixon used to go around. I know she's still alive or not, but she made all these predictions. And she was supposed to be the prophetess, the great prophetess of our time. And she would write, and you'd see, see her quoted around. And It was interesting. I forgot what the name of one of her books was. I forgot what it was. But anyway, I noticed that in the first chapter, I mean, if this wouldn't clue you as a, as a biblically literate Christian, I don't know what would. You open up her book, and the first part of the book is a testimony to how she saw this vision of a serpent. And the serpent came to her, and she looked into its eyes, and there was the eyes of perfect love and warmth. Now, if that isn't a rendition of Eden all over again, I don't know what is. But she plops it out in her book, and you know, everybody who doesn't read the Bible, and oh, this is, this is good stuff, ooh, wow, and swallows it hook, line, and sinker. And I mean, here, under the province of God, God let her spill her satanic beans in the first chapter so you can say this lady is really out of it here. But even so, she'll, she'll, I got, see, I prophesied this and it came to pass. I prophesied this and it came to pass. What she doesn't say is, well, I prophesied this, 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 and that didn't come to pass. And I remember when I was reading her that she said, but nobody's perfect. I mean, I actually said that to defend the fact that all of her prophecies never came true. I mean, she had a high percent verification. Well, so do I. I'm a meteorologist, but I'm not infallible. So the point is that she's a phony. And she's a phony by this criteria. This is the standard of evidence that is to be applied in these cases. The other standard of evidence is in Deuteronomy 13, since we're dealing with this, might review this. One standard of evidence is what we'll call the historical standard. What about the historical validation of prophecy? The other one is in Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or dreamer of dream arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, now look at this, and the sign or wonder comes true. Oh, you mean, well, I mean, if it comes true, isn't that proof that the prophet is 
is correct. Now just think about this, point of logic here. If I say to you that a false prophecy implies a false prophet, you've had some training in logic, you realize you can't from that statement say if the prophet is true, if the prophet, uh, prophecy comes true, that you can prove he's true. We'll stagger in that a minute. The Bible is very, very careful here. Here's Deuteronomy 22. Here is a case. Let's take a, a prophecy can be true or false. Okay? Now, Deuteronomy 22 is saying that if it's false, that implies the prophet is false. Okay? That doesn't say anything about if the prophecy comes true, that he's true. You've got to be careful. You can't draw that logical conclusion from that statement. All that statement says is that false prophets make false prophecies. It doesn't say that false prophets can't make true prophecies. So Deuteronomy 13 closes the loop logically on that dilemma. Because here, in verse 2 of Deuteronomy 13, it says, but it does come to pass. Well, what if it comes to pass, what other test do you, what screen, what filter do you have left? Well, there's another level of evidence here. If the sign of wonder comes true concerning what he spoke to you, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, the point is, in verse 2, where it says, let us go up after other gods, it looks like it's a quote in the Hebrew, but it's all, it's, quotes in the Bible sometimes are indirect quotes, and it's the sense of it. You can't expect false teachers to go around saying, well, let's not worship the God of the Bible. Let's worship another God. Satan doesn't wear red pajamas. And that's the point. The false prophet doesn't openly wave a red flag and say, see, I'm telling you to worship another God. It's not quite that obvious. This is the sense of it. The idea is, if you follow the teachings of this person, are you led to love the Lord God of the Scriptures or are you not? And how are you going to tell that? By looking at the Scriptures. So we're back to the same thing. The second screen here is that if the prophecy does come to pass, you have to subject it to another test. What about the teachings that are involved with this person? Are these teachings compatible or not with the Bible? So you've got one test here, Deuteronomy 22. You've got Deuteronomy 13 test here. And those are the two tests. And those are the two tests that reappear under different labels in the New Testament. Logic's the same. It doesn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But there's some hard and fast stuff here. Notice what is not said in any of these statements. It doesn't say how you feel. Oh, this, I, feel, I feel a sense of peace with this person. Oh, it might be peace. But peace can be spelled pieces. There's no emotional feeling. There's nothing like that here. This is all cold, objective evidences. The same kind of thing that we would see in the rules of evidence in a courtroom. That's not to say there aren't feelings. That's not to say that people don't have feelings. It's just saying the feelings aren't how you decide. It's the teachings 
whether they fit the standards of Scripture with a logical consistency with the Bible and the test of whether it validates. So, coming back to the topic for tonight, we're looking at the Old Testament prophets. So, these Old Testament prophets had to meet that test. And if they did, they were the prophet and they would be considered infallible. Now, let's turn to Deuteronomy 32 to see the technical details issue. When these guys made a prophecy, what were they prophesying about? Well, Deuteronomy 32, you remember back two years ago when we covered this passage. This was a foundation part of the Mosaic Law. And this could be looked upon as sort of like our Star-Spangled Banner. It's a song. And it was taught to the people. Look at the verse just prior to Deuteronomy 32.1. Look at the last verse of the previous chapter. What does it say? Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were complete. And then, if you go to Deuteronomy 33, I think it's in Deuteronomy 33. No, at the end of Deuteronomy, the same chapter, Deuteronomy 32, verse 44. Moses came and spoke all the words of the song in the hearing of the people, he with Joshua the son of Nun. When Moses had finished speaking all these things to Israel, he said to them, notice what he says about his song, Take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today, and you shall command your sons and daughters to observe carefully all the words of this law. It's not an idle word. So Moses is telling them that you have to listen and pay attention to the content of this song. Now, what is the content of the song? The content, unlike our Star-Spangled Banner, well, our Star-Spangled Banner reports what happened in Baltimore Harbor. That was a historical event. It's commemorated in that song. And to say that, well, I don't really believe that Fort McHenry was there, I don't really believe that the boats were firing at it, and I don't really believe that... Um, who was it that wrote it? can't think of... Gosh. Hmm? Yeah, Francis Scott Key was out in the boat in the harbor watching the flag. I mean, it, it, if you don't believe that there, there was a Baltimore harbor, there was a battle, Francis Scott Key was on the boat, and there were cannon firing, and the flag was flying, that was just a neat idea. Excuse me? What does that do to the whole song? It can't be a neat idea if it doesn't have history behind it. Well, this song is the same kind of thing, except the Star-Spangled Banner looks back to Baltimore Harbor two, three hundred years ago. This song looks back relative to their time, but it also looks forward. So this song is a prophetic national anthem. Our national anthem is not a prophetic national anthem. Thank God we might not want to know what our prophecy is. Um, but in the prophetic part of this song, look what, look what it said here. Verse 15. Up to verse 15 is talking about all the blessings that God gave the nation. So everything up to verse 14 is history past relative to the time the song was written. So that's past history. God's blessings. It's the story of what? It's the story of the exodus and the conquest. But it says... 
Jerusalem grew fat and kicked. You have grown fat, thick, and slick. He forsook God who made him and scorned the rock. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him. They sacrificed to demons who were not God. Now, isn't that interesting? What that actually says, and Paul says the same thing, by the way, when he talks about communion service and how communion service can be given to demons when it's accompanied by false teaching. Because who are the authors, instigators of false teaching? Satan and his hordes. So, in effect, what happens is, is that where deceitful and false teaching exist and come into the church, it's as though they're, they're kind of like magnets that get the iron filings attracted to them and the direction of orientation is towards Satan. So he says, you're really sacrificing to demons, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came up lately. You neglected the rock who begot you. And then it goes on to say certain things. It says, verse 23 and 24, I will heap misfortunes on them. I will use my arrows on them. What are God's arrows? Well, he's listed his arrows in verse 24. One is famine. One is plague. One is bitter destruction. One is teeth of beasts. One is the venom of crawling things out of the dust. One is talking about um, the, the enemy, soldiers, military conquest, verses 26 and 27. So, God is saying that He is going to rule His kingdom and He will not tolerate disobedience and disloyalty to Him. And if it happens, then, boom, I'm going to lower the boom. Now, if you go back to Deuteronomy 32, verse 1, and notice the language. The song, when it was sung, was sung before a jury. That's the picture. Somebody else beside Israel and God are listening to this. They really are. And it's the same thing in the New Testament when it says the angels look and learn from the church. We are being observed. We're in a fishbowl. And we can't, we can't see outside of the fishbowl. But we are in a fishbowl. Kind of unnerving if you think about it, actually. Um, other creatures of God's universe are sitting here looking at us. They must be wondering, I mean, how did God deal with these people? Good grief. Um, but they are looking at us and learning peculiar things, uh, the wisdom of God, I guess, from, from what we do. They, they look and see all our mistakes, all our sins. Um, but in verse 1 when it says, Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth, these aren't just little metaphors, poetic metaphors of the earth and the heavens. This is talking about the beings that inhabit the earth and the heavens. And where do we see the beings that inhabit the earth and the heavens in the book of Revelation? Who, who, when, the, when the prophecies are given to the what in the angel of the sun, and the sun physically responds by upping its light intensity, and the heat of the sun has changed. It's interesting, if you read the passage, it's not just the physics of the solar disk that are involved there. There's an angel addressed who, who turns on the physics, which is a peculiar and very non, 
scientific view of the universe, that behind these laws that we, we think we've got grasp of because we can write F equals MA and we say, we'll have slick. Behind that is the fact that there are these, the, the, what, these patterns, these footprints that we can describe in mathematical curves are actually the footprints of these controlling powers and principalities. And just because they work this way and say a nice sinusoidal curve for now doesn't mean that in the future they can't go like that. And then all of a sudden they'll say, gee, our computer model didn't forecast that. Well, that's what happens when God speaks to the powers that are controlling nature. Now, this isn't pagan animism. Don't, don't mistake this. In pagan thought, they didn't believe in any law outside at all. They just believed there were spirits of the air, spirits of this, and you had to get along, you spirits of potato plants. I mean, you, you had to, in order to be blessed in your life, you had to placate all the spirits. That's animism. It's not what we're saying. We're saying this is an orderly universe run under the sovereign word of God. These powers and principalities have to get screened through his sovereignty and his omniscience. So in the end, he's controlling. It's not the demons under the tree that are doing this. Our God is in control. The keys of the kingdom have gone to Jesus Christ. So he reigns. The Lord reigns. But that isn't to say that he doesn't use means to accomplish his ends that he's doing in reigning. And so if the book of Revelation read any way but, but in a spiritualizing, metaphorical way, you have to accept that the physics of the environment can be tampered with and, in fact, may be supported all the time by God's angels. And when he wants to manipulate, he just tells one of them, go manipulate. And he does it. The book of Revelation, go manipulate the physics of the solar, solar sphere. You know, turn on some more hydrogen or something. Heat it up. Okay. Boom. It's done. And that's so mysterious to our human minds. We, we don't think that way because we're not trained in our educational systems to visualize the universe in those terms. But that's what's happening. Now, keep that in mind and turn to Isaiah chapter 1, one of the prophets of the Old Testament. Isaiah was sent. Remember we said the role of the prophet was a prosecuting attorney because the prophet brought God's case against the nation when they had violated his covenant. And when the prosecuting attorney brings his case, he's doing it not just before the judge, but he's doing it before the witnesses. And who are the witnesses? Who is it that Isaiah... Remember, way, way, way after Moses, who does he address here? Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for God speaks. Sons I've reared up and brought up, but they've revolted against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's manger. Israel doesn't know, and my people don't understand. They're worse than animals, these people. So it's a, an appeal to the angels. And the issue is has God been faithful to his covenant? Answer yes. Has man been faithful to the covenant? No. How do you prove that? Here's Isaiah, let's say, in the 7th century. Here's Moses in the 14th. Many centuries have come and gone. We have an indictment here 
We have the original contract here. What is the proof of the statements Isaiah makes? How would, would he make the case? Well, the case is made by citing specific historical acts of disobedience. What does the rest of the book of Isaiah do? It records history. History is the record. It's his story. That's why the genealogies are in Scripture. That's why the stone monuments are in Scripture. That's why those tribal boundaries are in Scripture. All those little nitpicky details, and some of them, we still don't know what we're doing with those texts. We don't have enough archaeological background to understand some of that stuff. But it's in there because it deals with land. It deals with people. It deals with events. How else do you build the case? Now, are we or are we not in the realm of historical and technical details? Sure we are. The case can't be made without reference to historical details. So how can you say that the prophets slip and slide and get greasy in the area of historical details, but we sure believe their ethics? Where are the ethics? Where do we get those from? We always trot them out every time we need an ethic. Somehow we, we oh, I believe this. I mean, this is good stuff. Well, no. I don't believe this stuff. It's, it's phony if it doesn't fit the original pattern. So the Old Testament prophet had to get involved in history and details to carry out his role when he wrote prophecy. And by the way, who is it that wrote all the historical books of the Bible? First book of history. wasn't Herodotus and Thucydides like I learned when I went to high school, took a history course. Those were not the first historians. The first historians were the prophets of Israel and they wrote history not as a neutral academic exercise because they had nothing else to do. They wrote it because there's a purpose and a plan to history and it speaks of God and His plans and His sovereignty and His faithfulness. That's the motive for history. And I think that's why many of you probably have had this happen to you personally, that it wasn't until you became a Christian that you really began to get interested in history. Well, what turned on the switch? I mean, some of you may have a lot of academic training in history, but there's a passion to know history that oftentimes accompanies And we want to know what the neat things that he does. Because we know that behind all the neat things is a very majestic God. And we worship him and we stand in awe of him and we do so because we see his handiwork. That's the motive for history. That's what drives the passion. It's not cranking out a test two weeks from now to memorize every day between 1700 and 1900. That's, that's not the motive for this stuff. Okay, now let's come over to Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater than the Old Testament prophets. So, instead of just being infallible here, because of his hypostatic union, everything he says is infallible. Those are the earthly things. 
And when therefore Jesus Christ, as He says, and I think I gave you the references on page 67, the first paragraph under Jesus' historical and scientific claims is a lot more that He made, but I gave you three references, four references there from Matthew and Luke. And Matthew 19, He was dealing with divorce and He talked about Genesis 1 and 2. Matthew 23 is talking about the return that he will ha- have in history, the culmination and climax of history, talking about the uh, Adam. Matthew 24, same thing, he's talking about Noah. In Luke 27, he talks about the Mosaic authorship of the law that, by the way, no scholar today basically accepts. Conservative, godly scholars do, but I'm talking about the, the academia as a whole. These are technical details, people. Now, we're going to believe what the Lord said or not. If He's mixed up here, we've got some serious, serious problems about trusting anything else the Lord Jesus Christ says. If you've got a blubbering idiot for a Savior, He is no longer your Savior. Now, let's go on to another passage in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians. Because Paul carries on the same logic. All the guys know about this. 1 Corinthians 15. Here Paul is testifying to the resurrection of Christ. In verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, this is another key passage Remember I said one of the key passages is John chapter 3, verse 11 and 12? Here's another good passage to remind yourself whenever you kind of want to review this and think about it again and ask the Lord for insight and understanding. Go to this passage. This is a neat one because it's so thoroughly honest and up above board. Look what he says. If Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, that's the Gospel, How do you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? See, the people in the Corinthian church, they're like Dr. Beagle. They believe the Bible errors and all. Well, now Paul's a nice man. You know, he he was for missions. We believe in missions here. It's just that uh, we don't kind of like some of the things Paul says. And, and, you know, we're good Greeks, and, and Greeks just have a hard time understanding resurrections. So I don't think that uh, Paul, I don't think that we ought to preach the resurrection. That kind of offends people here in Greece. So they denied the resurrection. And there was a party inside the church. This isn't unbelievers outside the church. These are people inside the church. He says, how can you be saying there's no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. Now watch how he traps them. He starts with their argument. It's like judo. Somebody throws a punch and you, you take the punch further than they originally wanted. First thing you know, they're flat in their face. Well, this is what Paul's going to do now. He says, okay, you guys, you're going to be smart now. So let's see how smart you are. You deny the resurrection. So verse 13, if there is no resurrection, then the syllogism begins. Then Jesus couldn't be resurrected. And if Jesus can't be resurrected, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And in verse 15, he goes on to say, and now we have an ethical contradiction. See what we're doing? We're moving from a technical error to an ethical error. 
we are found to be false witnesses of God because we witness God against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if in fact the dead aren't raised. Wasn't there a, something in the Ten Commandments about bearing false witness? Ah, oh, ethics. So you see, you can't mess with the historical and technical details before you wind up in this big bog trapped in the ghoul. And the ghoul is that you're now violating the command not to bear false witness. Now here, if that applies to Paul, it certainly applies to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ in his hypostatic union is bearing witness, bearing witness, bearing witness. Everything he said, everything he did, bearing witness, bearing witness, bearing witness. And he makes mistakes? What kind of a witness bearing is that? Jesus is a false witness if Jesus made technical mistakes. Okay, now if you'll follow with me in the notes. I want to go to one other thing, uh, two other points before we close tonight. One of them, uh, real quickly, this one, sometimes some people find this very hard to understand. Others catch on to it very quickly. Um, if this gives you trouble, don't feel bad about it. It's, it's just sometimes you just have to think about it. Here's the argument. Infallibility can never be denied. What happens is, is that infallibility is relocated from God to man. If you deny infallibility of Scripture, you're placing the judger somewhere, right? Because now, if the Scripture has errors in it, who tells you which are errors and which aren't? Where's the infallibility now? Moved to man, didn't it? It moved from the Scripture to man. See the move? It's like the magician. You know, he has you looking at this, and meanwhile his hand's doing something like that. Well, let's just look at the hand here now. What's going on? Infallibility has been relocated. And this is useful. Sometimes you might be able to use this in a conversation with folks saying that uh, somebody poo-poos the Bible and says, well, an infallible Bible may sound silly, but I'll tell you what sounds sillier is a person like you can be infallible. Let's look at this a little bit. Here's an example. Beagle says that the Bible is in all essential matters of faith and practice. It's authentic, accurate, and trustworthy. So what he's saying is that the Bible is correct when it deals with matters of faith and practice that are essential. Who qualifies what's essential and what isn't? Dewey Beagle does. Some evangelical proponents of errancy say that the rules of women's behavior in churches given in such passages as 1 Corinthians, and I'm not uh, here advocating every woman wears veil in church, please. Um, what I'm saying here is, this passage is a difficult passage, 1 Corinthians 11. But however difficult it may be, you can't kiss it off and say it's some little cultural thing in the first century and we don't pay attention to it today. 50% of most congregations are women. Is this essential for faith and practice or not? 
I would rather say it is, if it concerns 50% of the people, it sounds essential to me. But Jewett, Professor Jewett, another one of our inerrant, or our errant evangelical brethren, says that, well, that's technically wrong. That's just, just a technical error that crept into Paul. Oh, that's good to know. Now, how do I decide what's essential then? Well, he thinks this isn't essential. Well, how do you know it's not essential? If it doesn't apply, if it applies to 50% of every congregation, you think it would be essential. So you see what happens? You just get on greasy ground, people. When you start messing around trying to deal with it, errancy inside the text because now you've moved outside of the text to get another platform to judge this platform. So you're always trying to locate errancy, inerrancy somewhere. That's simply point. The last paragraph on page 69, the phenomena of the movable location and infallibility led Rushdoney to call infallibility an inescapable concept. Noting how infallibility has been ascribed by unbelieving writers... Now he's going to go through some of the writers here. Watch this, because this has been done in history again and again. Unbelieving writers sometimes ascribe it to cosmic evolutionary process. There's a Frenchman, Deschartes, who's influenced theology in the 20th century an awful lot. It's been ascribed to the general will of society, Rousseau. You realize that Rousseau, another French thinker, my, what things have come out of France. Rousseau... And his way of thinking has basically taken over this country. Think about the discussion. If we take a Gallup poll and 51% of the people say something's right, we should make it into law. Huh? Why do we make it into law if 51% of people say, well, that's, I mean, this is a democracy. That's how you decide what's right and wrong. Oh, really? Then if 51% of the people decide that uh, murder's okay, can't bother with it anymore, it's interesting... And so we just let it go as a phenomenon. Then it's okay. See, see, this is, see what happens here when you, when you deal with this. So Rousseau, he tried to locate it in the general will of society. That's really the heart of uh, autonomous democracy. Then some tried to apply it to the ruling political party. That's communism. See, each one of these isms, they all have their point of infallibility. You just got to smoke it out. Sometimes it takes you a while, weeks, months of study. But sooner or later, you're going to find out they have their version too. It's just hidden. It's called by different names, hidden with a vocabulary, but it's there. The word infallibility is not normally used in these transfers. The concept is disguised and veiled. But in a variety of ways, infallibility is ascribed to concepts, it's ascribed to things, it's described to men and to institutions. One observes this movement of infallibility away from Jesus in the Bible to man in the conflict between Genesis and historical science. Modern schemes of earth history are basically considered infallible in that no amount of data, it is believed, will radically alter them toward the view of early Genesis. Have you ever heard of an evolutionist saying, well, I'm not really sure of this. You know, I mean, after all, we might discover data that validate the Bible. They're not going to say. In their heart of hearts, they believe that it basically is true. We just got to clean up a few details here and there, but it's basically true. You know, many Christians give up. Just give up. You're never going to undo the case. That's essentially, operationally speaking, that's infallibility. What is infallibility? You don't question it. 
It's true. It's your starting point. Another instance is the view that apparent discrepancies between the historical data in the Bible and the records of secular history will never be resolved by future data in favor of the Bible. Same thing, archaeology in the Bible. In these cases, Bible critics presume an inherent infallibility in their modern worldviews. Infallibility has thus not been eliminated at all. It has been simply absorbed by unbelieving thought and transferred to man so as to confirm his autonomy. Now we come finally to the last section, and that is why only those of us who are Christians who take the Bible seriously, only do we have a basis for infallibility because we have God who is omniscient, who is sovereign. We have man down here with finite knowledge and God in His sovereignty rules history so that everything comes under His control. His omniscience provides the plan for His sovereignty and that omniscience is communicated to man. So we have knowledge that God has knowledge. We don't have omniscience. We don't know all the shots. We have a finite knowledge. But we have within our finite knowledge, knowledge of one who has infinite knowledge. And because of that, we trust. And because of that, we know that there's a pattern out there. We know that whatever happens in our lives personally, though it's sometimes very painful, sometimes very mysterious, sometimes shocking, whatever happens, it is being controlled. Now, that doesn't take away the pain in every case, but it doesn't knock you for a loop and knock you totally flat so that you you just give up all hope for living. You never get to that point because you know that there is a plan there. Now, because of all of that, and when this God moreover says that I've designed you in my image and the Son becomes flesh, so we have the hypostatic union, it's this that gives us the basis for infallibility. The pagan doesn't have infallibility. So, even though he tries to get a substitute for infallibility, he's desperately trying to locate it somewhere. And what he does, he locates it right up here. Hanging in thin air. Not a basis. No support. No justification. It's just hanging there. Our infallibility is grounded in all this that we have studied over the, over the months. The God who is our creator, the God who providentially runs history, the God who created man in his image, and the God who incarnated himself in man, walked around this earth and told us the truth of the way it is. I am the way, the truth, and no man comes to the Father but by me. That sounds like a very arrogant claim, and that offended me when I was a non-Christian. I couldn't imagine this. But it was that verse and the pain it caused me personally that led me to the gospel. Because that verse forced me to realize that you couldn't have Christianity and this and this and something else. You either had to have it as the final answer or just throw it out. That's nonsense. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, said the God-man. And no man, no man ever comes to the Father except through me. 
Well, how did they come to the Father through the Old Testament? Through Jesus Christ in His pre-incarnate. Who was it speaking to Him? Who was it that came to Isaiah when He said, and the word of the Lord came to me? What was that? Came to Isaiah. That was God the Son. Who was it that created the world? God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's the Word of God. The Father spoke. Who is the speaker? Who is that which is spoken? It's the Son. So it's always been true. It was true of Job. It's true of Adam. It's true of Isaiah. It's true of David. It's true of the numerous people in pagan society that believe. Think of the centurions. Think of the, the Gentiles. Think of the Ethiopians in, in the book of Acts that became Christians. All came, became to God through the Son. So only in Christianity do you have this. Gordon Clark, to complete the, the notes here, the last, last quote I have on page 70 uh, Gordon Clark taught philosophy at a secular university most of his life. And from what I hear, he had numerous um, discussions with the faculty at that particular institution. Um, but here's what he summarizes in his discussion of infallibility. A sinless Christ is an example of such a concurrence, that means what we would say the hypostatic union of God and man, more stupendous than the errorless writings of an apostle. Remember the diagram of the group? The writings of an apostle, prophets acting infallibly only on in a small zone when he's writing Scripture. But here we have Jesus Christ 100%. Everything he did, everything he said, every look that he gave was revelation of the Son. A sinless Christ is an example of such concurrence more stupendous than the errorless writings of an apostle. If the second person can become man without sin, the lesser miracle of Paul's inerrancy is all the more possible. Arguing from the greater to the lesser. You see, it's not a problem to have inerrant. How did Dr. Luke ever write a, a, a document like the Gospel of Luke, Book of Acts, free from technical and historical error? How did Jesus Christ become incarnate? And if he was incarnate, I don't have a problem with Luke. Father, we thank You for our time together and we thank You for these great truths and may You continue to remind us over and over and over again for we need reminding. And in the ebb and flow of our details of our lives, uh, each week we often forget this, we drift, uh, we don't keep fixed upon You and we need Your Holy Spirit to constantly bring these truths to our hearts to renew our consciousness of them, to <clears throat> deepen our faith in your person <clears throat> and in your promises. Through Christ's name, we give you thanks and ask you for that. Amen. Our last Q&A for a while. We'll try to get started um, within a week or two of Labor Day, not sure when, but we usually, sometime before the end of September, we usually start, start up again. Um, there'll be a notice, I think, <clears throat> G.Q. Sefi puts a notice on WDAC and call the church office if you don't regularly come here. It'll be there on it. Um, what we'll try to do is finish the death of Christ and the resurrection because when we deal with the death of Christ, it involves another big um, 
a large set of doctrines actually because of the work that was accomplished in the cross is the center of the gospel. So we have to be very careful how we treat that. Um, and it's a, it's a work, again, not without controversy. It's a work that wasn't really discussed in depth until the Middle Ages. It's amazing. Um, took the church four or five hundred years to get hypostatic union right. Um, it took them until a thousand A.D., to understand that, oh, gee, there was a substitutionary death. Um, uh, it took them until 1500 or so A.D. to realize that, well, gee, you know, if Jesus substitution, if we had substitutionary death, then really that means that I don't have any merit and I have to accept Christ's merit. Oh, okay. So, you know, we're slow learners. <laughs> um, 1500 years, actually took to understand that point. And I, I mention those things not because I'm trying to d demean uh, the saints that have gone before us, but simply to say that um, when you struggle with these truths and we discuss them and it's some, they're hard, yes, they are. And the people weren't stupid. Uh, people who were the many of the people who were the great students inside the church um, were brilliant men and were godly men. And it took just a lot of time to think these things through. One of the problems being, of course, that the scriptures were scarce. Uh, for many years, uh, they only had parchments, no printing press, and uh, you just memorize whatever piece of scripture you could memorize and go from there. Um, so we're blessed. We're so blessed. We have access to scripture. We have Bibles coming out the gazoo. We have five, six different translations, most of us, uh, or access, access to them if we need them. Uh, we've got Bible dictionaries. We've got concordances. We've got all these things. You know, they, those weren't available. Those haven't been available for most of church history. And yet all this stuff was worked out. So it's pretty amazing, actually, when you think about it. And it's, we, we, do de we don't properly credit the work that went into all this when we just say, well, here's the doctrine, here's the teaching, here are the verses. Okay, next. And, and teach it like that. And that's, it took a long struggle to learn that. We can teach it in 15 minutes, you know, the hypostatic union. I mean, gee, you know, you just memorize the, the statement, undiminished deity, true humanity, and so forth. Well, yeah, but it took a while to make that statement. So we mustn't trivialize what we're learning here. It may be statable in a sentence or two, but that sentence or two came after a lot of thought and prayer and a lot of blind alleys. People went down all kinds of blind alleys before they got it right. And we're still going down in our own centuries. Uh, the church is still struggling with eschatology. How do we construct the details of the return of Jesus Christ? Now, we better get it ready pretty soon. I mean, you know... They're not going to have the rest of history to think this one out. But that's an area that's still under discussion. Are you going to touch on the... Yeah, in the church. Well, we've already touched on some of it, premillennialism. Um, well, this, this isn't a course in eschatology, but, but we'll, we'll go through some of the basics. Okay, are there any um, questions? Yes, Bonnie. Oh. And I get lots of 
Yeah. That's right. You don't have one as one punch this. You're a real person. In a situation like that, you, you want to say, well, ma'am, you know, what we're talking about here has been around for a number of years. In fact, if you go to your shelf and take that book called The Bible out, that approximately um, 2,000 years ago, somebody wrote the same thing. And I don't think Paul was an American. Because, see, you've got to hide behind Paul, and when you get into these things, the people always want to make you, you know, you're the bigot. What's the matter with you? No, you got the B.O. And, and what you have to, you have to kind of hide behind Jesus and just say, hey, I didn't make this up. This is in the book. Check it out for yourself. It's been around. Granted, it hasn't been read too much, and I, you know, apparently you haven't read too much of it. Um, but you might try. Try that. And you'll see that what I'm saying, check me out. You know, she's coming to check you out for the thing. She ought to check, check out whether what we're saying is American. I see the book of First American in the New Testament. Is that in there? <laughs> it was, reminds me, this, this conversation reminds me of a friend of mine years ago who was working in this business. And uh, I guess it was run by a Jewish man. And uh, this guy liked to pick on him. He found out he was a Christian. Uh, okay, now he's going to put the barbs out. See? Just, just pushing. Actually, when they do that, they're just trying to, trying to see um, sometimes whether you'll stand up for it or whether you just cave in. And, uh, and then if you stand up politely and courteously, oftentimes nothing will happen, but that sends a message, just that. And uh, so this guy was going on and on. Instead of saying it was an American thing, I don't know what he was saying, but, oh, Gentile thing. This is just Gentiles. And so my friend had had his he he had his entree because what he then turned around to this Jewish guy and said, "Hey, fella, the Gentiles didn't write this book. It was you Jews that wrote it. Jesus was a Jew. 
So you got a problem with your judge. This is a Jewish thing. I'm, I'm just a stranger to the whole thing. I read it, and I trust the Lord, but it's you guys that wrote this whole thing. And that way, he says the guy just dropped his jaw. He didn't know what to do in response to that kind of a thing. And it was great. That's something I would think, I'm slow-witted that way. I'd think of that three weeks later. But I mean, he thought of it just at the right time, the right place. It was great. Anything else? Yes. Well, that's, that's a good question Paul's asking about. When do we think that Jesus in his humanity, as he expanded his consciousness as a small child, when do you suppose he became aware of, of this? And we're shut up to what the Scripture said. We don't know. The Scripture just gives us that one event when he was 11, 12, right with Jewish bar mitzvah age. And um, at that point, it's clear at then that he was convinced of his role in life. Now, when it happened, um, the scripture just doesn't tell us. We're, we're left sitting there with, with a mystery. We don't know. We do know that um, you know, the fascinating thing that Chuck Colson brought out, uh, and I, I've got to get the reference that he used for this because I would really like to check this out. There's a passage, apparently some scholar has recently found in one of the church fathers, I know it was Justin Martyr, or um, one of the guys, the church fathers that wrote early, who says that in his day, <clears throat> you could go down to certain places and find wooden plows that Jesus had made. And they were still being used a hundred years later. So, they knew. I mean, he had made, he really was working in a carpenter shop, really made real wooden plows. And, you know, that's never mentioned in Scripture. And, you know, gee, uh, that's kind of neat. I wonder what it, did his wooden plows look different from everybody else's wooden plows? I don't know. It's just that apparently they thought enough of them that they were quality plows that lasted for a long time. Um, there are all kinds of things that grew up in church apocryphal literature. Um, I have not read it, but I have had people who have read it tell me that there were stories circulating in the church that when Jesus was a boy, uh, he'd throw rocks up and break them in midair and just have fun with the kids in Nazareth or something. And, but we don't know. Uh, you know, that, that sounds a little cheesy to me that he would do that. Um, so the scriptures just are silent. Yeah. 
Yeah. You're playing with his... Yeah. Yeah. And then you hear stories every once in a while about, oh, Jesus went to India. And now we've got the... You know, he went to India. That's where he got... In, he brought Christ, He brought doctrines of the Orient into Christianity. And oh, come, Give me a break. Um, so, but that stuff circulates. And Paul's question is a genuine question. And uh, we all like to know that. And I think we'd like to know that because... I guess we'd like to know how children learn, in particular in that case. And all I can go back to is, one, we know that his parents, now whether it was his mother, his stepfather, or both of them, um, they had, according to scholars who have studied the vocabulary frequency, sometimes you take... They do statistical studies of vocabulary and expressions among different authors of the scripture, and you can diagram these out and do I've never done it, but read people have done it. They say if you do that for Jude, James, and Jesus, and Mary, you find there's a commonality there, that that family had its own way of talking about things. Now, this is not being spooky and saying Jesus did. It's rather, he seemed to have, um, inherited a strong sense of God's work in nature. You read the book of Jude, and when he's talking about the apostates, he's using comets and stars. James uses the same thing. Uh, apparently, they, they must have thought a lot about the creation around them. And you can speculate that maybe that's what Joseph and Mary taught their kids. They'd take them out in a dark night and show them the stars and, and talk to them that way. So we know that Jesus was obviously taught godliness from his parents. No question about it. Um, it's pretty clear that his parents, by the time Jesus was born, had become aware of their genealogies. That there was something special. That this couple, that Joseph probably um, might not have given his genealogy two, thought, two cents worth of thought. But I, I would expect that at least by the time Jesus' ministry rolled around, there'd been a lot of work here. Because to confirm his messianic role, he had to justify it genealogically. So, so how did he learn that? Did the Father just reveal it to him, or did they actually go to Scriptures and check it out? Because Jewish people had genealogical records. A lot of them did. And I don't know where they were kept, but they seem to have it. And it seems to be a tradition because when Nelson Glick, who was an archaeologist in the 1940s, he was one of the early archaeologists after World War II, tells a story that he was uh, studying the Bedouin. And the Bedouin are people out in the desert. They're, unfortunately, they're being absorbed into urban society now, the Bedouin. And they don't... They don't it's, there's a danger of the loss of that whole complete civilization. Um, when I visited Israel in 1976, I remember you, you go out in the desert and you'll see these, uh, they usually gather around oases and I don't know how they stay alive, uh, but they have their full flocks and they dress, oh my, they dress in black wool in hundreds of degree, 100 plus degree heat. How those people, I don't know, I mean they must be tough, tough cookies. Because they're out there in this black. I don't know what the heck's the problem with these people. 
you look at a good old Israeli, and they're out there in Bermuda shorts and you know safari hat, and uh, the, these Bedouin are out there wandering around these black garments, men and women, both of them. Um, but the Bedouin have preserved, they're the last civilization on earth, the last group of people socially to preserve a lot of the biblical customs. So Nelson Glick, after World War II, realizing they weren't going to be around long because Israel occupied the land, the Arabs did. And so you have these people, in order to survive, they have to start their own businesses and go into the cities. So they, they've lost their culture, like the American Indians. And so he wanted to study them before they dissolved. And one of the things he noticed one night, it just clicked with him, is that he looked over the campfire and this father was with his son and they were holding a big rod. And he, he, he looked over there and he said, what the heck's going on here? And the, the dad would be holding his hand on the section of his rod and saying something to the kid. And then the kid would say something and the father would move his hand down. And the kid would say something. His father would say, yeah, that's interesting. So he went over there and asked him what was going on. He's not teaching him his, the family history. It's carved on the, on the staff. He has been so-and-so, been so-and-so, been so-and-so, been so-and-so. And all of a sudden, Nelson Glick said, Holy man, the genealogical passage in Scripture. It's been so-and-so, been so-and-so, been so-and-so. And for years, scholars laughed at that and said, Oh, that's just a construction. Well, here, the Bedouin's still doing it. So that was one of those little neat tidbits that he discovered that that was, at one time, apparently universal. So... Jesus probably had his own family history apart from direct revelation. He had access to all these other things. And then there's that passage in Isaiah 50 that I cited, you know, back three weeks ago, that he was wakened every morning by the Father. And uh, morning by morning, you waken me and teach me. So that's clearly telling you that the Father was, he had some deep conversations, probably at a very early age. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sure of that. It's just that I think what Paul is trying to get at is, is what was going on in his head. When did it click? I mean, you know. But... Pr- Well, he was, at, he was conscious at least by 12. There's no question about that. The, the question is, was it a gradual dawning? You know, we just don't know, because the Scriptures do not tell us.
She, uh, his mother, uh, it's a fascinating study, the interaction between Jesus and his mother throughout all the Gospels. Because on one hand, the Gospels seem to be very carefully crafted to avoid Mariolatry. It's as though the Holy Spirit has structured Scripture to protect us from any kind of Mariolatry because it's clear that she's subordinate to him and he doesn't necessarily follow her. Uh, and this, the, the wedding feast is a good example of that. Um, at times, he he's almost sounds harsh to his mother. At other times, at the cross, it's the last thing he takes care of. Here he is dying for the sins of the world, but he takes care of his mother, the welfare for her. Um, so there was a strong, obviously strong bond, always is, between a son and a mother. But in Jesus' case... Well, the disappearance of Joseph in the text. You know, I mean, did he die? Whatever happened to Joseph? Uh, he just kind of drops out. So, but these are these are neat things to think about. It's just that we have to keep keep submissive to what the scripture says and what the scripture omits. And we just huh? the scripture omits it. We'll have considerable time in heaven to thrash it out. And there's probably room, you know, we, we have no idea what the new heavens and the new universe looks like, but it's hard to believe that there isn't work, there isn't creative creation. I mean, think of the, the, the stunted efforts. I mean, uh, you think of the great artists. Here, Beethoven goes deaf, and he's writing music. And you think, oh, gee, what would the guy do if he, if he hadn't lost his sense of hearing? Um, you read of uh, what's her name goes blind and, and yeah and and you think of of the, the the thwarted potential in this fallen world. Um, what would it be like to be in a sinless world with none of these impediments and the full potential of the human, just the human creativity in the presence of God. Um, uh, it just blows your mind about about that potential, and it gets back to the fact that it's not just sitting there, you know, singing psalms. It's probably creating new ones. Well, our time's up, so uh, we'll see you in the fall. Oh, the new, the new, the.
Well, the, the thing about Star Wars that you, you want to kind of remember um, that, well, well it has a mixture of things in it, but what's always fascinating me about these things grip people. And it's not just because they sell toys to make extra millions either. It's the story itself grips the imagination of folks. And when you think about what he's done there, Lucas has done, is he's created an epic. An epic that involves the universe. It's a, it's a to- totally, an epic that involves everything. And people in our day and age crave meaning. They still crave meaning. Our hearts are made to find meaning. And an epic gives a sense that there's a meaning and there's a purpose to everything, including these things that we have yet to see. They're woven together with us in a plan. It's just that it it becomes a surrogate for the plan of Scripture. But nevertheless, it witnesses to the fact that the human heart wants to dwell in a world with meaning. This isn't just atoms banging around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the theme of good and evil. Yeah.